Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. We are a rewatch pod for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, normally I would ask how you are doing, but today we have a more important question. What do you want? <laughs> well, in lieu of singing All I Want for Christmas is You, I'm going to counter with another question. Who are you? Does Has has he watched enough episodes to know how to I, I have watched enough episodes to... I, I understand the validity of that question. Okay. Okay. Today on Babylon Project, we are doing episodes 13 and 14 of season one, Signs Importance, and... TKO, which is like, we've got like three quarters of this we're going to love. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have uh, one and a half solid episodes here. (laughs) One and a third. Yeah. I I didn't count the minutes in TKO, but. I feel like we should because the distribution is weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very beefy B plot. Anyways, um, so we're going to start with Season 1, Episode 13, Signs Importance, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Janet Greek. Um, this is notable, I suppose, because this is uh, Signs Importance is also the name of our season. Yeah, I want to talk about that real fast, actually. Um, Babylon 5 is one of the few shows I know of that actually has this, where it names the seasons. I didn't even know that. Yeah. All of the seasons have a name. Uh, And let me think. Season two is Coming of Shadows. Yeah. Season two is Coming of Shadows. Which also has a eponymous episode. Yeah. They all do. They all do. Uh, Season three is Point of No Return. Season four is No Surrender, No Retreat. And season five is The Wheel of Fire. Oh, fuck. Wow. Right? Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, and Shit. I think that not only is it super interesting that they that JMS named the seasons as he was doing it. This wasn't something that like the fans did after the fact or something like that, but that they're also named after specific episodes. Like I mentioned it only so that as we talk about this episode, bear in mind that every season has a every season has a name and it's named after an episode. And that this was done in advance. Like, this is a thing JMS planned out in advance. And that this episode, therefore, bears a very, like, central place in his thinking with regards to what this season is about. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I, it, like, from, I haven't, for the first two seasons at least, both um, episodes that we've watched that have bared the season's title have felt sort of like mid season finales. Mm -hmm. yeah and sort of thematic standard bearers too Mm -hmm. they are representative of what the season is trying to do in a big way 
All right, I've got my narrative hood on. Let's get going, folks. Let's do also, it. also notably, this is an episode that's actually written by JMS, which is a really good sign, generally. Yeah, for sure. All right. We start our episode with Ivanova getting dragged out of bed to CNC because of a distress signal. A raider group, the one we saw back in the pilot, is attacking a convoy. Sinclair tries to scramble Delta Wing, but the escort and the convoy are destroyed before he can even finish the order. Rip. A man arrives at customs. His name is Morden. He says that he has just spent several years on the rim. Number one, please set your suspicions to yellow alert. <laughs> Sinclair and Garibaldi discuss the raider problem, noting how their lack of heavy weapons hasn't dissuaded them from getting bolder and bolder, with their attacks drawing ever closer to the station. The small fighters are able to jump without a gate, it seems, and that is very strange. Delta Wing is placed on standby for the foreseeable future. As they dismiss, Sinclair requests Garibaldi to look into things on the Battle of the Line. Sinclair mentions he remembers Delenn somehow. Garibaldi thinks that not a lot will turn up, but thanks Sinclair for trusting him with it and will look into it. Meanwhile, in the casino, Londo meets with a guy named Reno. Londo has contracted him to find the Eye and acquire it, a Centauri artifact that has been lost for over a century, and an invaluable symbol of the Republic. As they discuss these things, Mr. Morden watches from the bar. As Londo leaves the meeting, he and Jakar exchange insults in the turbo lift. Jakar leaves for his quarters and is approached by Morden when he arrives there. Morden asks him, what do you want? To which Jakar replies that he simply wants the Narn homeworld safe. Once homeworld is secured, nothing matters. Morden doesn't seem satisfied with this, leaves, and Jakar is pretty confused with the entire encounter. A Centauri transport arrives on the station with Lord Kiro and his aunt, the Lady Ladira, who is a seer. Ladira, uh, while in customs, has a vision of the station exploding. It causes her to faint. Ladira is taken to Med Lab, where she is found to be pretty okay. Kiro dismisses her visions, saying that she has been wrong before. For example, she predicted that he would be killed by shadows on his first birthday. Kiro is here to return the eye to the Emperor, and Lando agrees to show it to him. Morden next meets with Delenn, who asks the same question. What do you want? Before she can answer, she is overcome with a headache, and she orders him to leave. After he does, she whispers, they're here. I want to inject one thing here, uh, a point that you left out of your summary. It's not just a headache. She covers her forehead, and when she reveals it, she's got, like, a symbol has appeared on her forehead. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. It's a triangle, right? Which is worth noting, um, because as far as I know, it's never mentioned again. She just has, like, in season one, certainly, it's never mentioned again. Like, her magic, like, her, like, blue orc glow forehead tattoo <laughs> uh, never, oh my God, never glows st- again. It's Stig! She's Stig! <laughs> yeah. Except without the music career. <laughs> She she's around more than other times, and it's not like it goes off again. It's just this one time. God. So. Okay, but is she around more than other times in season one? Well, fuck, I don't know. Maybe not. I don't we'll think see. so. So I think this this may be something forgotten. It may be also a season one versus season two Delenn difference. 
But uh, do other men? It's not like every Minbari turn turns. You know, has <laughs> turns a a warning light that go a, a little like turkey warning light that pops out when when Morden goes by. Well, well, we know we know that Delenn is special. I just want to call it out. It's fucking weird, and it's a it's yeah. a dangling plot thread the size of like a a, a climbing gym rope. So I just want to yeah. throw it out there. Yeah, it's definitely never picked up again. It's, not the only one. I have another one I want to call out at some point. So carry on. So Kiro examines the eye and he and Lauder discuss the state of the empire. Kiro uses with that with the eye, he could become emperor. But Londa is pretty sure he wouldn't last a day without support. Meanwhile, a freighter, the Achilles, reports being attacked by raiders. Ivanova and Delta Wing head through the jump gate and a man on B5 who's watching Kiro remarks that they have taken the bait. Ambassador Kosh returns to the station. As he heads to his quarters, we get a scene where Morton is clearly avoiding Kosh. Malari heads out to deliver the eye to Kiro. He runs into Morton, who asks the same question. What do you want? Londo initially answers that he wants to be left alone, but after being worn down a little bit, he spills. He wants the Centauri returned to their rightful place as a feared empire, as a master of the stars. Can you say that with the accent? I want the Centauri returns to their rightful place among the stars. Your Malari uh, impression is uncanny. Because it's, it's dumb. so good. It's, it's, it's a weird accent. Morden is clearly pleased by this response. Back in CNC, Sinclair is confused by the newest raider attack. It's two sectors further away than the previous one. A break with the pattern. He demands that the freighter's manifest be brought up so he can look into things. Londo and Kiro are walking to the ship, and they are ambushed, and their escorts killed. Londo, Kiro, and Ladira are taken hostage. The criminals take the eye and the hostage to customs, where Sinclair, who has figured out that the Achilles is just a diversion, heads them off. The leader of the raiders holds a PPG to Kiro and boards Kiro's ship with him. Sinclair allows the ship to launch, choosing to instead let the jump gate uh, refuse Kiro's ship codes, trapping him here. However, that uh, plan goes very quickly awry when a raider ship jumps in. Oh, they've got a mothership. That's how they're getting around everywhere. It launches fighters, which are able to gain cover for Kiro's ship to board the raider vessel. Londo escorts Ladira to a shelter, and Ladira says that the shadows have come for Lord Kiro. Morden also runs into Kosh during the commotion, who demands that he leave immediately. Outside, the battle is raging hard, but the raider fighters are defeated through the timely return of Delta Wing. The raider ship, however, is able to j- open a jump point and escape. Ivanova's request to pursue is denied. On board the raider ship, the leader of the raiders and Kiro converse. It is revealed that Kiro was the one working with the raiders. They wanted the Eye not to help Kiro overthrow the Centauri government like he planned, but to ransom it and Kiro back to the Centauri. However, before they can work out details... An alarm sounds. A strange alien ship arrives and immediately destroys the raider's ship. Back on B5, Londo sees Ladira off. Londo believes the loss of the eye will spell the end of his career, but waiting at his quarters is Morden, who has the eye with him. Morden informs Londo that he has friends that he doesn't even know he has. Garibaldi informs Sinclair in a wrap-up scene that his investigation into the Minbari turned up that the Minbari chose Sinclair to run Babylon 5, a stipulation as them signing on to the project. 
As to why, Garibaldi has no clue. Ladira also shares her vision of Babylon 5's destruction with Sinclair, uh, with Ladira explaining that it's a possible future, one of many. And thus we have Signs Importance. It's a good episode. Yeah. This is a re- one of my favorites of season one, for sure. It's a very good episode. Now, now that I'm no longer doing the summary, I'll refer to as that John Travolta motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. 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 Morden, one thing that I realized when I was rewatching this episode most recently for this recording was the potential for a Jakar Ascendant AU. And this is not just because I'm the resident Jakar stan, but he lets Jakar off with like no bullying. He's like, what do you want? And Jakar's like, I want my home world to be safe. And Morton's like, eh, whatever. And then he goes to Malari and Mars like, to be left alone. And he's like, really? And he's like, yes, to be left alone. He's like, really? He like bullies Malari into giving him a, a like a belligerent answer and I'm like what if he'd flip that yeah because between the two yeah right between the two of them Jakar easily could have been almost more likely could have been bullied with the slightest provocation into giving a belligerent warmongering answer but I think maybe it's because Jakar gave an actual answer not a non-answer like mm-hmm. That I think if Jakar had said to be left alone, then Morden probably would have continued to bully him. But the fact that Jakar actually said something to start with. Yeah, um, no, which is valid. And yeah, that'd be wild. I can and I can explain away why it is, because like in later seasons, we get the explanation for it kind of in that. I think how far have you How Let's see. What season season two? What season does Jakar... They they don't know the thing yet. Okay, it's season three. It's season three with the with the thumping of the book. <laughs> um, we will see the the fundamental characters of Malari and Jakar become more evident as the seasons go on, and that will show why Malari was the person that Morden picked versus Jakar. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even even in the the start of season two, um, with as we get along the the various revelations of Mister Morden's uh, employers, mm-hmm. um, we like and Jakar's own investigations of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, even when Jakar, so season two, like. Narn has fallen. Yeah, I mean, not 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 at that point. Like, yeah, at the end of the season, that that's when that happened. Yeah, that's the that's a season ender. Yeah, okay. Is the the all out war? All right, then we'll stop there. Suffice yeah. to say, yeah. we will see. As I said, we will see their fundamental characters revealed, and it will make more sense. But I just think I was thinking about like, can you imagine Jakar in Malari's place? Yeah, because they the two of them kind of diverge but at this point are not that dissimilar yeah exactly there's so much plot in this one too it's great yeah this yeah. is there, there is no a plot or b plot it's just the plot yeah that, that's that's i didn't make any attempt to differentiate them because they're sort of just going back and forth they're interwoven 
Um, yeah, this is also a episode that um, I mean, it starts with what you would I think maybe like it's a plot that you could easily dismiss of just like oh Londo wants a MacGuffin so he can look good to the Centauri court. We've never heard about the eye before. We give no fucks mm-hmm. about it. It's just it's something yeah. you can easily write off. But it is it's a very good MacGuffin, and that word is something that gets tossed around a lot. But it's like this is a good this is a good MacGuffin. We get like it's the it's the glowing thing inside the briefcase. Yeah, it's an elegantly constructed episode. Everything in the episode serves to further the the purpose of the episode. There's no no dead space in this episode at all. Mm-hmm. And the the Centauri are also people for whom a the presence of a, of a MacGuffin actually makes sense for them. Like it wouldn't make so much sense for say the Narn to have a MacGuffin. But you know, a a relic of the the old days of the of the Centauri Republic to gain back their glory, like that. That's a real that that has a real like weight to it in the plot. Yeah, although I will say the the eye looks like something you would have bought at like the science store at the mall in nineteen ninety seven. Or yeah, at like a museum was. gift shop, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it looks like it looks like if you if you took like a model of the solar system and then bedazzled it. <laughs> yes, accurate. Oh. Uh, the budget shows on the eye for sure. It, there's a reason why you see it for about four seconds total in the episode. Yeah. So one of my favorite things on this episode is that we get more development of the idea that the Centauri have like seers and precognition that, that like we've had um, Londo like having the vision of his own death. Mm-hmm. That's been revealed at this point. And we have another person who has genuine visions. And it's kind of, it's kind of poo pooed by one of the, by, by Lord Kiro, but it's it's interesting because it's something that the plot takes seriously. Yeah. That this is a thing that exists. And it's not something that I recall any of the other major races having. Yeah, I think it's interesting that psionics, or whatever you want to call it, telepathy, telepaths, um, seems to present or manifest differently in the different races. Yeah. And not that may be an aspect of culture. That may be like the way that the culture shapes the telepaths. Um, or that may be an element of, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure wh- wh- what that is. But it seems like certainly the human and the Centauri aspects of psionics are very different. And the little we see of the Minbari ones are different enough that you I could believe that there are aspects of Minbari telepathy that are are very different from nar uh for some from Centauri or human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like for instance, I don't think that Minbari telepaths have to have line of sight. Yeah. I think that the seer thing is particularly interesting because there's no implication that like the Lady Ladira is a telepath. It seems to be something that's entirely different. 
Yeah. And that's that's what fascinates me about it and makes me think that it's a really cool world building thing. I mean, there's no techno babble or anything like that trying to explain it away. It's just a thing that's there. Yeah. Uh, we have to make Justin take off their headphones for a second. Activate gold channel one. Uh, particularly given that we know that telepathy is a thing that has been cultivated by the older races as a tool. Oh, yeah. So the the fact that what role the, the sort of prophecy plays, how that relates to telepathy, and how the other races have used it, I think it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's ever fully discussed, but I think it's really, really super interesting, especially given the Centauri are sort of the, you know, the abandoned children for, for, for as far as like the Vorlons are concerned. They don't have telepathy or they don't have they weren't used by the vorlons in the same way their telepaths aren't developed in the same way and maybe that's why they developed precognition like this i don't know it's weird yeah. maybe they're sort of a rogue i branch. think the, the next time we see it is the one where there's major barrett right yeah yes which is a good episode uh, is that right or is it the one where um the emperor shows up with his long distance telepaths the actual telepaths Oh, right. Well, that's that's also wild. But I don't think they have precognition. No. But the long distance telepaths are a thing that's wild and we'll want to talk about. Yeah. I think I think we should rescue Justin, though. Welcome back. You're safe. You're safe again. We were talking about something different from what we always talk about. <laughs> the same thing we talk about every Tuesday night, Pinky. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff from season three and four. Sometimes, sometimes like the the B five casting is just like completely forgettable. But there is like this. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this, but there is a remarkable forgettableness about Morden. Yeah, yeah. He's so he's he's both generic and sinister. Yeah, yeah I I noted this when I I made my notes on about this episode. Morden is, I think, and I think that casting is good. I think it's it nails it in this one because I think he's he is so blandly threatening without actually being threatening. He never, and he's not even threatening. He's welcoming. He's inviting. He's well. I'm not even. Yeah, beyond even this this episode, I I struggled to think if any time he raises his voice. I mean, he can be a little bit threatened, like a little bit, like a little bit scowly face, but he never threatens violence. He never raises a weapon. He never yells at anyone, but he is still this avatar of evil. And the casting for that is really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I also think it's appropriate that they picked like the most blandly handsome white guy for that. Yeah, it's 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 solid casting and solid acting as well. Yeah. I think I think I can only think of one place where he's more actively threatening and that's when Londo tries to break away from him. Yeah. And I think that's it, which I, I think is something that Justin has seen at this point. I think it's something interesting like uh GMS talked about this in um, his Usenet chats for this episode, how 
Morden is somebody who I mean, really you know you you know he's bad news. Nothing he does in this episode is bad. Like yeah. he just asks people, hey, what do you want? And he even helps Londo out. He's a good guy. Um all he does is avoid Kosh, which will And and make Delen real yeah. uncomfortable. And you know, and 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 he knows the inverse of that of Kosh is maybe sort of kind being kind kind of being supposed to be the guy who you know is on the side of the good, but also has done a lot of dickish th- things through this season. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, well, and and we're gonna get to that with Grail a little bit too. Yeah, Kosh is like the ultimate ambiguous good at this point in the show you really can't put your finger on exactly where he is going to land uh on like ultimately so for for morden to be sort of opposed to him at this stage it's not at all clear the only indication you have where morden uh like sort of objectively that you have of where morden's going to end up is clearly he's associated with whoever blew up that ship yeah but as you're pointing out here, Justin, that doesn't none of that matters. Because the actor's performance, we should probably use his name. It's Ed something, Ed I want to say. Ed Wasser, thank you. Ed Wasser's performance is great because all that aside, you know this motherfucker is up to no good. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. he might as well be dunked in oil and just just smearing bad news all over the place. He's so slimy, like, in every scene. It's that smirk. Yeah. What do you want? If you go back and look at my original tweet threads, I refuse to use his real name. I refuse to use his character's real name on those threads. You refer to him as... That John Travolta-looking motherfucker or that Ross Geller dude? Honestly, I find the Ross Geller comparison much more disturbing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Ross Geller's a sociopath. Uh, John Travolta's... Uh, Saturday Night Fever. John Travolta's just got weird hair. He he he's a distinct level of creepy that only only white people in suits can approach. I mean, he, he and he's also like, yeah, it, it's just there's this whole um, there's just this ominous thing that goes around him, and then we get to see who he's buddies with those freaky alien ships that have like. The better version of Romulan cloaking technology, they get to fire while cloaked. Yeah. Yeah. The I don't know which of you two wrote that weird alien ship is cool. I, I mean I wrote it I wrote it, but that was just because I was like, I I, I want to expand on this and talk about it. So I'm just gonna say is cool. <laughs> Those ships are Yeah, such a good design. So good. I remember so distinctly when this show was on TV and that show wobbles out of, I don't know what it was, cloak or hyperspace or whatever (laughs) it is it's doing in that scene. And I just remember thinking, what the high holy fuck is that? Because nothing looks like, nothing looked like that. You go back and look at every ship, like look at what Star Trek was doing in 96 with its alien ships. And you've got like the fucking like ping pong ball covered, you know, kids balloons of Star Trek next generation <laughs> season 
two, you know, one and two, and you've got like nothing comes close to what's going on with that ship. And then you've got this goddamn, you know, alien spider crab motherfucker comes out of hyperspace and zots this thing with its laser, and you're just like, what the shit? And I, it's it's described so well within the within the show at some point that somebody describes it as a cross between a spider and your worst nightmare. Yeah. And I'm honestly, this is how good the yeah. design is because that exact impression comes across when you see the, one of those things for the first time on the screen. For sure. Of like, what the holy hell is that? Mm-hmm. And like, the viewer ends up being afraid of those ships. Yeah. My notes for this episode initially postulated that there that I thought there was a connection between the aliens here and the alien at Sigma nine five seven back in Mind Horror. Well, interesting. Interesting. That, that, that is the that is the the hot take theory that I that um, two months ago me dumped in. Uh, so I'm rolling with that. That that was. Uh, we'll see how that plays out with the rest of this, with the rest of the series. I got like interesting. Well, we'll maybe come we back four to that. Half seasons yeah. for me to be proven wrong. Uh, the last thing I want to say about this episode is Ladira's vision that she she shows uh, Sinclair. Uh, we mentioned that she doesn't really seem telepathic, but somehow she shares it with him. Dubious power set. Yeah. yeah. That vision comes up again, but not really, and. I have to believe that this was something that they thought they would use before Sinclair left. Because it's... That's essentially part of the Babylon Squared plotline, right? Yeah, they bring it up in the Babylon Squared plotline. So I have to believe that this was going to be something. Because it's... And they tie tie it up. Yeah, they tie it up. They essentially tie it up there. But it's in, this, in season three. But it, it definitely feels like a, a dangling plot thread that they managed to like wrap up. But yeah, it, it definitely feels like an un like a piece of Sinclair's plot that met, was going to get used for something else that they repurposed because it's a creepy it's a real ominous vision of destruction for sure. Yeah. Well, do we want to talk about TKO now? Yeah, let's no. go. And it's it's unholy marriage of one of the best B-plots in the show and one of the worst A-plots in the show. Uh, can we just talk about the B-plot? Do we have to talk about the A-plot? <laughs> we, we, we well, like... my, summary is, my summary is basically just the A-plot. Um, so so um, based, based on the relative quality of the two plots. Okay, lay it on me. So Ivanova is unexpectedly visited by an old family friend, the Rabbi Koslov, who is known to Ivanova as Uncle Yasel. He has traveled all the way from Earth to deliver her father's legacy, which was entrusted to him prior to her father Andre's death, um, which we saw in Born to the Purple, and it was witnessed by Garibaldi while he tried to track down a communications glitch. He had intended to give the legacy to Susan at the funeral, but she wasn't there. And this hits on a bit of a sore point between the two, because not only has Ivanova not gone to the funeral, she also didn't sit Shiva for her father. She claims that her duties on board the station have prevented both, that she's too busy. And Rabbi Koslov offers to sit Shiva with Ivanova now that he's on the station. Susan refuses, claiming that she is still too busy now. 
and that there's really no point uh, since so much time has passed. And despite the tension between the two, the rabbi is still a good friend who has traveled a very long way, and the two make plans to eat dinner tonight that evening. The rabbi is concerned about Ivanova and speaks to Sinclair about the situation. And we find out that Ivanova hasn't told Sinclair about her father's death. The commander is surprised, but the rabbi explains that Susan and her father had a falling out after her mother and brother died. And Sinclair promises that Ivanova can have as much time off as she needs to sit Shiva. At dinner, Ivanova and Rabbi Koslov reminisce. Ivanova had invited her father to visit B5, but he'd refused, claiming that humans have no business being in space until they can live in peace on Earth. And the rabbi mentions his conversation with Sinclair. Susan is furious about this, that Rabbi Koslov went behind her back. And especially this is angry. She's angry about this because it reminds her of her father trying to control her life. Ivanova meets with Sinclair herself, and he officially offers her leave, and she refuses it. Sinclair cautions her to make sure she knows what she really wants and what she's really feeling before she makes any decisions. Ivanova and the rabbi meet again in her quarters, where Koslov apologizes for meddling and gives her the legacy, an antique samovar that has been in their family since the time of the Tsars. He tries once again to convince her to sit Shiva, and she again refuses, but gives more explanation this time. Her father was never there for her, even after the death of her mother and brother when she needed him most, and she can't forgive him for that. When Ivanova goes to meet Koslov as he departs the station, she remembers her father's last words, which were an apology for not giving Susan enough love, and a plea for her to forgive him. She calls out to the rabbi to stay, that she's changed her mind, and the two make preparations. Sinclair joins them to sit Shiva, along with at least part of the Jewish population of the station. Ivanova tells a very heartwarming and funny story about Andre from her childhood, and the group read the traditional prayers, although in English for Sinclair's benefit, which is a very good B plot. Um, well, that's been happening. We've had the A plot. Rabbi Koslov isn't the only newcomer to the station. Garibaldi is joined by an old friend, the pro fighter Walker Smith. The two catch up, and it's revealed that Smith was disgraced on Earth um, because he refused to throw a fight. But he is trying to reclaim his honor by competing in the alien fighting ring on Babylon 5, the Mutai. And humans are generally barred from fighting in this. Smith tries to sign up and is literally and figuratively smacked down. Ends up saying some extremely racist stuff. And, and Garibaldi reminds him that the Mutai actually means something to his participants. Um, who would think that Garibaldi would be sticking up for not being completely racist, but here we are. <laughs> um, the, the two part ways, and Smith is approached by an alien who offers to train him and show him a loophole so that he can indeed fight. Uh, Smith claims to have given up on his goal, but brings Garibaldi to a fight as spectators. After the sitting champion, Gior, wins the fight, Smith challenges him and a match between them is set. Smith is confident about his chances. Garibaldi and his trainer, uh, not so much. But Smith claims that to be the best, he has to fight the best. At the match, everything seems to be coming up Gior, but Smith gets a second wind, ending up with a draw for the match overall. And with the outcome that humans are allowed to fight in the Mutai, and Smith heads back to Earth to reclaim his glory after his victory? And that's that plot. You left out the one part of this uh, about that part of the plot that I like, 
which is uh, Garibaldi in his very, very corny uh, oh ringside gosh. coach outfit with his little vest and his like, oh, yeah. you know, let me cut your eyebrow uh, tool belt. Yeah, it's well, bad. let's just get the B plot um, out of the way so yeah, we can the... talk about the A plot. And, yeah. Um, this is this is some really uh, not great shit. Um, it's every trope. This is a really racist 80s movie. Condensed into 30 minutes. Yeah, it's every... It's so racist. It's every, like, kickboxing, karate fight movie you ever saw in the 80s or early 90s condensed into 20 minutes that's it it's it's really it's really just like white dude wants to fight in a traditional asian fighting arena movie yeah but somehow they expect it to be okay because instead of asians it's alien asians and instead of a white dude it's a black dude yeah, not even like attempting to yeah. hide the coding they're doing for those aliens there. Okay. No. It, and the the it's so bad that so I've been playing uh, Ghosts of Tsushima mm-hmm. on on the speakers. My husband Michael was like, "Wait, isn't that the announcer from the Mutai episode of Babylon 5? God. <laughs> and I was like, "No, it is not. No, oh. it is not." Yeah, that's um also I I have other problems with this B plot or with with his A plot. Let's just call um, it the good plot and the bad plot. Yeah, I have I have other problems with this bad plot, which is why are humans not allowed in the Mutai to start with? Like are the are the Centauri and Narn and Mimbari not allowed in? There's a like my recollection is that there's a Centauri fighter in the background in one scene, but I could be mistaken. Right, right. Like like it's not a like League of Non-Aligned Worlds are allowed in and major races aren't thing. Maybe it's, it's number of you dicks. Must ha- you must have <laughs> this possibly. many dicks as a species to like you as a species must average this many dicks per person. Yeah. Cause like like Earth is a major player, but they're certainly not that much more powerful than say the Centauri. My personal headcanon for this is that just nobody likes humans because they're assholes and and they just do that or it's just a hazing Could thing be that. that like whenever they get a new species in, it's like, no, you are better for fighting at the Mutai. Yeah. I'm sure that that is what they, I'm sure that if you ask the writer, he would say it was something like that. Some sort of like stand outside the temple and prove your worthy thing. And and I'll note that this episode was written by Larry Dottilio and directed by John C. Flynn III. And we are going to talk about Larry Dottilio in our Do we AI like John that face. Dottilio? Okay. I can't remember. The name's familiar, but I can't remember if we like or dislike him. Well... Okay. He is, he is a legend, but we for will, other We will reasons. get into that. We will get into this. Perhaps. Oh, good. Um, I don't think there's anything more to say. It's it's badly yeah. written, it's racist, and it's bananas that it shares screen time with the rest of this episode. It's so fucking insane that this episode, this part of the episode, is this is in the is literally on written on the same paper as the rest of this episode it's yeah it's it's 
it's just wild. It had to have had I, multiple writers. JMS had to have done a, a dust up on this episode or something. I almost want to rewatch it and time the minutes on the two plots because I think it's actually about equal. I wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Anyway, good plot. Yeah, good plot. So I'm just going to put this, like, um, this is a, I don't think we've had, okay, we've had Ivanova-centric plots before. This is by far the best one. Yeah. Considering that we've had one plot of her jerk-ass ex. Yeah. And we had we had the, the sort of the lead into this plot in um, Born to the Purple uh, with the commu- with the communications thing. But yeah, this is really the first time we've gotten to see her stretch dramatically and it really pays off. I really like that there's a lot in in media there are lots of bad Russian stereotypes and there's lots of bad Jewish stereotypes and I am neither of those things so I am not qualified to speak to this but I I have been told that this the elements of this of this episode the Russian and Jewish elements of this episode are pretty faithful and respectful uh, and really establish those elements of, of this character in Ivanova um, in, a, in a way that make her, that sort of form the base of, the, of this character going forward for the next, for the rest of the show. Yeah. Um, I, I really, really like how it's put together and it, it feels very real to me as, you know, also a person who is neither Russian nor Jewish. But it feels it feels nuanced, multifaceted, um, like the sort of complex relationship that a real person would have with their upbringing, mm-hmm. um, heritage, uh, and religion. For sure, I think that grieving is something that is particularly hard to write uh, or like to portray well. Because a lot of the time it can seem, uh, it, it it can get lost in either the writing or the direction or the acting and come off as insincere in one of those three. And it's really easy to ruin, I think, like, or to make it feel, or to make it miss a beat. And this is a, it's a really just like, it's a very frank and very, uh, it's a very real you know, space notwithstanding, I like this is a this is a plot I could see happening in a number of different shows. Yeah, yeah, you could take for sure. You could take this plot and turn it into a stage play, and it would. The fact that it's on a space station would be the only part of it that would prevent it from being in any other setting. Like, and you could you could easily have it be that Ivanova moved to a different city or something like that. Yeah, the fundamental parts of it are very human. And I think that's, I think that's what I was trying to get to before. Is that th- this episode to me? I think this is episode is part of why Ivanova is so beloved. Is it really establishes early on, pretty early on here, in in the sh- in the show's run, a very human core for her character, and I suspect it did for her, the actress as well, because this. There was she had she's done a really good job with the character to this point, but this is like a turning point for the character. 
I think. Yeah, absolutely. And she really like hits high notes from here on out mm -hmm. with the character. And um, I think this is like where that human core of the character starts. And um, I think you correctly identified that like this is a very human story and it works anywhere. And I think that really is, is why she turned into such a fan favorite character. And Claudia Christian absolutely sells it. Like the the way that she's upset at Uncle Yossel for mm -hmm. meddling mm -hmm. with Sinclair. It's it's like that that thing where you're like, you know, you're so angry you could cry or you're so sad you could scream type of thing. Yeah. It's it's a very good emotional moment there. For sure. And and also the the storytelling of you know telling the story from her childhood, um, that's also I think really good, and really well done. Yeah, I also want to like say that the 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 guest actor we have for Uncle Yossel uh, just fucking like blows that guest spot out of the water. Yeah, yeah, he's really good. <laughs> and then on the other hand, we have. Walker um, Smith, but yeah, the I, like one of, my, just, one of my favorite bits of this episode is where Uncle Yossel is eating an alien food and and checks with and checks with Susan. Is this kosher? And, and the the entire the entire response to that is shrug. Yeah, and and then he's just like. You know, the Torah didn't say anything about Trill. On, on Lurker's Guide for this episode, um, JMS said, basically, that scene was a lot longer, but we can't have a 30-minute Talmudic discussion on television. Um, and they and, and still expect for uh, our viewers to call us a sci-fi show. I'd watch yeah, it. Yeah, it was like the... That the original script had had a discussion of like scales and gills and such, and they cut that a because it like like did a record scratch in the middle of the episode, um, and also because like it's an alien yeah. creature. What if it's an alien with scales? Exactly. Just saying. But what do, what do scales even mean on an alien creature? What is a scale? Yeah. No, I get you. Also, another little bit for this episode. Um, Zima is in this episode yeah, there's somehow. There's a Zima sign in 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 the bar. I love that <laughs> Zima didn't make it out of the '90s, and yet they're 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 presuming that Zima lasts to the 23rd century. Apparently, they were not paid for that. They just put the sign up there as a joke, which is fantastic. Uh, which is actually better than being paid. I think them just like goofing on Zima to being like, Zima's the Highlander. It just comes back every couple of years. It pretends to die and comes back. It's also so much better than if there was yeah. like a Coca-Cola sign or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Because yeah. like, what's Zima going to do? <laughs> All right. So tell me if I'm supposed to like or hate Larry Dottilio. Okay. So this is, so Larry Dottilio is going to be our, hey, I know that face for this episode. Uh, but he's actually, hey, I recognize that uh, that name. So Larry Dottilio, uh was one of the story or was one. It was the executive story editor for B Five. In the eighties, he got his start as a writer uh, for kids shows, namely He Man and She Raw. 
That's right. We talked about this is this is yeah. the guy that led us to that probably entirely too long discussion about um, that sci-fi show he did with uh, JMS. Yeah, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Um, but but because we're a bunch of fucking nerds, um, Larry Dottilio during the 1987-88 writer strike um, took a year off from screenwriting because, well, he was his guild was on strike. And uh, took a year and just decided to try role-playing game writing and wrote Masks of Nyarlathotep, which is, if you are familiar with the game Call of Cthulhu, is the big Call of Cthulhu game that it, like, is one of the greatest adventures of all time. It's, like, the most iconic of all of the trail, or all of the Call of Cthulhu Yeah, it's the tomb, it's the tomb of horrors of of call of cthulhu yeah this dude just takes a year off of writing writes a bunch of stuff did like the first adventure for, for pendragon um and uh like did tunnels and trolls and stuff and then oh and he also did terror australis which is the call of cthulhu supplement for australia um as if you could imagine eldritch horrors worse than australia's native biology <laughs> And then just after that, just went back to screenwriting. Dude had like a solid 18 months of writing RPG stuff. Then just went back to screenwriting. We love to see it. It's just absurdly yeah. prolific, too, at the RPG writing. Like, that's that's absolutely bonkers how much he wrote. Because, like, Masks is a big uh, he, book. Yeah. He also um, was one of the lead writers on uh, Beast Wars. Man. Buddy had productive Brandon Sanderson of fucking cartoons and apparently '90s RPG supplements. Yeah, uh, that 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 is our. Just because I think this was the first episode that he he wrote, um, I, I wanted to showcase him instead of an actor. Uh, no, yeah, valid. That's cool. All right. Uh, so yeah, I think overall one and a third good episodes. Uh, like and that third is really good with nothing further to do join us next time where we'll be watching episodes 15 and 16 grail and eyes until next time be seeing you the babylon project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own clips from the original show remain property of the original owner Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.